When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And here's to season three of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Seattle, Washington. The area that is now Seattle has been inhabited since the last ice age, roughly 11,000 years ago. Migrants who would become the Duwamish tribe of Native Americans settled here after crossing the Bering Strait from Siberia. In 1852, Elliott Bay was settled and eventually became the city of Seattle, named after Chief Seattle, who led the Duwamish and other tribes in the Puget Sound area. Areas of great natural beauty, including the densely forested Olympic Peninsula and the Cascade Range, surround the city. Currently, downtown Seattle is dominated by tall skyscrapers that overlook Elliott Bay and enhanced by the city's abundant parks and neighborhoods. Seattle is the largest metropolis of the Pacific Northwest and one of the largest and most affluent urban centers in the United States. Seattle is known for being the coffee capital, a home base of big technology companies, and the origin of grunge music. It is home to iconic landmarks like the Space Needle and Pike Place Market. Seattle is also famous for the delicious food, beer, and wine on offer, and its lush greenery has earned the city the nickname the Emerald City. But in 1980, Despite Seattle's inviting landscape, the city was on edge. There was a rapist in their midst. Residents were grateful when the rapist was captured, but were quickly reminded that sometimes it takes a little more digging to get to the truth. At 7.22 p.m. on Sunday, October 12, 1980, Port of Seattle Police received a 911 call reporting a rape that occurred on a secluded road just south of Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. The victim was a 17-year-old hitchhiker, and her name was never revealed publicly. The site of the attack was a dead-end dirt road lying under the SeaTac flight path. Many homes had been condemned or demolished as the land was sold to the airport. Four officers from the Port of Seattle responded to the scene. Police found the victim crying, but with no obvious marks to indicate a violent assault. The teenage victim took officers to the scene of the crime and pointed out the location where the suspect had parked and the attack occurred. Officer Diane Lathrop noted fresh tire marks where the vehicle would have traveled. While several officers remained at the scene, Officer Lathrop drove the victim to the hospital. The victim told Officer Lathrop that the perpetrator told her to do what he said and she would not get hurt. After the assault, she was told to pull up her pants, get her coat, belt, and other clothing and stand in front of the car until he drove away. Because he made no attempt to hide his appearance, she believed he was going to shoot her, but he didn't. When her attacker was gone, the victim ran up the hill and looked for a house with lights on. At the end of the road, on the hillside to her right, she banged on the door of Paul Liston, a retired carpenter who had yet to sell his land to the airport. Was he the last one? He was the holdout. Wow. <laughs> Go Liston. I know. Within minutes, at 7.22 p.m. specifically, Mr. Liston called the police. The victim was able to give the police a lot of details. She described her attacker as a white male, 25 to 30 years old, six feet tall, medium build with a full beard, 
and shoulder-length light brown hair. She said he was wearing a three-piece cream-colored suit. The victim told police her attacker drove a royal blue car with blue velvet seats. She also said he had a necklace or garters hanging from his rearview mirror and a brown vinyl binder lying on the back seat. She said he had a temporary license plate sticker beginning with the numbers 667 or 776. Police went to work right away, and Detective Ronald Parker was called in from home to oversee the search for evidence and conduct the investigation. Operating with the belief that the rapist was familiar with the area and probably lived nearby, Detective Parker and other officers began cruising through parking lots along Pacific Highway South looking for the car. Six hours after the call to police, at 1.20 a.m., Detective Parker and Officer Robert Jensen found a light blue 1981 Chevy Chevette with vinyl bucket seats parked outside the Rain Tree Restaurant and Lounge on Pacific Highway South. It had a Playboy Bunny air freshener hanging from the rearview mirror. And Kath, although this wasn't a perfect match to the victim's description, they believed it warranted their attention. Port police waited outside the restaurant, and when a male and female emerged from the bar, the officer's suspicions intensified. The man was white, around five foot eight, and had a beard and light brown medium-length hair. After allowing the couple to drive away, police pulled them over for questioning. The man said they were headed home to Kent, which is a city southeast of the airport. The man was 31-year-old Steve Titus, and he was with his fiancée, Mona. He told officers that he picked her up at Denny's restaurant at around 9.30 and brought her out for a drink for her 21st birthday. Home of the Grand Slam breakfast. You know it. (laughs) I'm a breakfast gal. I love Denny's. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) I have a Denny's story that happened years ago. Do you want to hear it real quick? Yes, always. (laughs) Have I heard it? (laughs) I don't know if you have. I think our listeners want to hear it regardless. Yeah, (laughs) my sisters were in town and we were going to drive up to Sacramento to visit one of my sister's friends. And so I think at that time, I probably had four kids and I think she had one. Anyway, we pile all the kids in the car and my two sisters. Anyway, so we're in my van and it's a long ride. I don't want to arrive with hungry children. So I go, let's stop at Denny's and feed them first. So we get in there and it was it was like the world's worst customer service. We practically had to seat ourselves. Everybody was ignoring us and it wasn't even that crowded. So we sit at the table and my number four child says, I feel sick. I'm like, you're going to be fine. You're just hungry. Here's Kathy's school of parenting. If it's not broken or bleeding, you're fine. Totally. Dude, like if they tried to come home from school sick, I would say, is there vomit on your shoes? And if there wasn't, then you get your butt back to class. Like I was, yeah. Oh, wait, here's the best one, though. Honestly. What? Whenever her kids were in the car and they're like, we're thirsty. What was your response? I'm not. I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) thankfully i do this is what she told her children swallow your own spit (laughs) you thirsty swallow your own spit i'm sure we weren't driving in the desert and it was probably not very far to the nearest water hole you were going like 10 minutes from school to home exactly she was not depriving her children she just wasn't allowing her children to be the petunias that they wanted to be exactly And as a consequence, they're all pretty tough people. Exactly. (laughs) Anyway, so we're sitting in this restaurant and my daughter's like, I don't feel well. I'm like, you're fine. You're fine. You're just hungry, blah, blah, blah. And she freaking projectile vomits (laughs) 
all over the table. I, Kathy, I am telling you, it was like a three foot diameter and I am not exaggerating. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, my kids don't drink juice boxes. Like I never bought juice boxes because they were too expensive and they would only be in the house five minutes. But my sister was a juice box gal. So all of my deprived children were just like <laughs> pounding these juice boxes, you know, for like seven hours or whatever. So anyway, she vomits all over the table and Is it like the, the table was like, ah, like this collective scream went up. We must have been ignored by three waitresses. So finally, my sister gets up and says, can we have some towels? So she and I start cleaning up the mess. And eventually, because we're ignored for so long, we're like, let's just get out of here. We just left. We went to a drive through, but we did leave them a little bit of vomit. Yeah. <laughs> Here's what I honestly think. I think it was probably toward the end of a shift. They saw all these kids. Oh, yeah. Maybe they assumed I was a bad tipper. I have no idea. But they it, assumed it, wrong. We were like pariahs. They, I, they did assume wrong. Yeah. We were pariahs. So anyway, thank you, Claire, for yes. getting us out of that restaurant. <laughs> And no more juice boxes for you, Clary. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that was the lesson. <laughs> uh, she's a lovely young woman anyway. Right. So. <laughs> anyway, back to the story. Police asked Steve Titus where he was earlier, and he said he was at a family party in the afternoon and got home at 630 that night. After that, a friend came over to hang out until Titus left to pick up his fiance Mona from work. Titus and Mona were questioned separately outside the car, and Titus had no problem with the police searching his car while they stood outside of it. When he was told that a girl had been raped and her description of her attacker had similar features to Titus's, he agreed to be questioned at the police station. Front and profile photographs taken of Titus show him smiling. He was joking with police officers and asking if he and his fiance could have their pictures taken together, which officers did. Officer Scott Pearson took photographs of the interior and exterior of Steve Titus's vehicle, as well as his tires. Police noted that Titus was both polite and cooperative. That same night, Detective Parker went through the department's mugshot files and compiled a montage of six bearded men, including Steve Titus. Detective Parker and a fellow officer then returned to the crime scene to photograph tire marks left on the lane. The next day, the detective used the montage of photos to show the victim. At her mother's home in Tacoma, the teenager studied the photos for several minutes before pointing to the shots of Titus. This one is the closest one. It has to be this one, she said, identifying Steve Titus. The Chevette that Titus was driving was actually a company car owned by his employer, Ivar's Seafood Bars. As district manager for the company, Titus supervised 100 employees at seven seafood outlets. He was at the company's office on October 14th, two days after the rape, when he was arrested by port police and led away in handcuffs. Police also seized the car. In a police interview that afternoon, without an attorney present, Titus gave Detective Parker and Officer Jensen another statement explaining his whereabouts at the time of the rape. The statement was not recorded, but he once again told them that he had a friend who was also a neighbor at his apartment that evening who would vouch for him. Titus had never been arrested before. Aside from a traffic citation in 1978, he appeared squeaky clean. Titus spent one night in jail before being charged with first-degree rape. He then posted a $2,500 bond and was released. Steve Titus hired an attorney and insisted that he was innocent. The prosecutor's office made Titus a deal. They said he had to submit to a polygraph exam. If he passed, the charges would be dropped. If he failed, they would go to trial. 
but the results were not admissible in court regardless. A former Seattle police polygraph specialist, Dewey Gillespie, now in private practice, administered the test. Titus failed the polygraph. The prosecutor then suggested he admit guilt and avoid prison by going through a sexual psychopath program at Western State Hospital. Titus declined. Steve Titus's jury trial began on February 25, 1981, four months after the attack occurred. Which, by the way, is a pretty quick timeline. Oh, yeah. Judge Charles Johnson presided. Titus's attorney, Thomas Hillier, tried to get the victim's identification of Titus excluded from evidence. In the photo montage compiled by Detective Parker, both pictures of Titus are smaller than the five other pairs of pictures. Titus also stands out on the sheet because, in contrast to the other subjects, there is no dark line border between his front and profile pictures. Titus's attorney argued that the montage should be suppressed as being suggestive. The motion was denied with the judge saying the jury should decide the issue. And Kath, I just have to say, too, I am shocked, based on newspaper articles that we have read going way, way back, that the victim's name, as we said, was never given. You know, here's the funny thing. I do remember growing up that oftentimes victims weren't named. However, like you said, when we read these old newspapers, they're like 11-year-old victim, Angela Smith, who lives at, you know, 1234 Smith Lane. Exactly. It's like, did they just give the name of an 11-year-old rape victim and her address? And here's her phone number and (laughs) her parents are at work from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Totally. I mean, it is crazy some of the stuff. So yeah, I can't believe that even now, and you tried, we couldn't find the victim's name. No, I could not. It is nowhere in records. I couldn't find it anywhere. But as a side note, you know how you read old newspaper articles to prepare for this. So I'm reading the the newspaper and I start laughing because there was a skydiving competition and 10 people jumped out of an airplane naked. (laughs) (laughs) Can I guess they were all men? They weren't. Oh, wow. There were six men and four women. Six men and four women. And what was funny, so I'm reading the paper and it says the skydiving judges were slightly amused, but these people were banned for life, basically. (laughs) Oh, so it hadn't started out that way. They were in a skydiving competition with all these and other the teams. judges weren't expecting this. Yeah, nobody was. Wow. And these people totally like, woohoo. Look at me. Exactly. <laughs> Ten happy exhibitionists. <laughs> the prosecutor's first witness was a friend of the victim who worked as a waitress at the Red Lion Inn on Pacific Highway South. She testified that on the evening of the rape, the victim visited her at work and left the Red Lion Inn at 6.20 p.m. On cross-examination, Titus's attorney pointed out that on the night of the rape, the friend told officers that the victim left the Red Lion coffee shop at 7 p.m., not 6.20. Regardless, the witness stuck to her revised time estimate. And Kath, as you know, timeline was key, right? If Titus was the rapist, there was a very narrow window of time that he said he was alone in the apartment. Exactly. Timeline was everything here. If you're like Kathy and I and you enjoy a nice glass of wine, but you're not a connoisseur, let Dracaena Wines be your guide. Dracaena is the creation of Lori and Michael, a husband and wife team who both have science backgrounds. Michael is a food chemist and Lori was a microbiologist. So these two nerds did the hard work for us. (laughs) And we mean that in the most complimentary way. Most complimentary way. (laughs) My husband and I actually met Lori in Paso Robles. She was phenomenal and introduced me to her Cabernet Franc, which is to die for. They actually specialize in Cabernet Franc, Rosé, and Chenin Blanc. 
And for the last 10 years, every vintage of their wines has received a 90 plus rating from wine enthusiasts. That's no surprise. It's so good. The name Dracaena is the genus name of the Draco tree, and Draco was the name of their beloved Weimariner. So all you dog lovers out there got to buy their wine. (laughs) Because they donate to dog charities. And you will get 10% off if you use the code KILLER. And they have a wine club that's called the Chalk Club, which I love. That's named after their dog named Vegas. Right, their second Weimariner. Exactly. And that's because in Vegas, if you're betting chalk, you are betting on all the favorites. And they are taking the gamble that once you taste their wine, like Kathy with a C did, they will become one of your favorites. Not only are their wines delicious, they're reasonably priced. So to make a purchase, go to DracenaWines.com. D-R-A-C-A-E-N-A Wines.com. And on this site, there's a link to their weekly podcast and weekly blog posts, and you'll also find links to all of their socials. The victim took the stand. She said she was hitchhiking on Pacific Highway South. He told her he was going to Tacoma, but instead he got off the highway quickly, and a couple of turns later, he pulled into a narrow dirt lane leading to the foundation of a demolished house. It was there he told her he had a knife and ordered her to undress. The victim told police that he held what appeared to be a screwdriver to her throat. It was never found. Afterward, she ran for help and found lights burning in a house at the end of the road and asked for help. That was where retired carpenter Paul Liston called 911 at 7.22 p.m. While on the stand, the prosecutor asked the victim, do you recognize these pictures? Showing her the photo lineup, which she originally identified Titus from, and she said yes. He then said, and do you recognize the person who raped you on October 12th? She said she did. Do you see the person in this courtroom? The prosecutor asked. Yes, she replied, pointing to Titus. Kath, then the prosecutor says, step down off the stand and walk over to the defense table and get as close to Titus as he was to you on the night you were raped. How did the judge allow this? If that was defense counsel, they would have been what? Hopping up and down. Exactly. But the prosecutor was the one doing it. So, of course, what happens is she gets down, she walks toward Titus and bursts into tears. Of course. Yeah. So the defense attorney was like, yo, objection, your honor. This is prejudicial, blah, 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 blah. And the judge is like, zip it and sit down. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, he overruled the defense objection and allowed the trial to continue. On cross-examination, defense counsel pointed out that the victim originally told police that she was picked up by the rapist at 6.45 p.m. But in court, while on the stand, the victim stuck to her revised 6.30 p.m. time estimate. License plate numbers played an important role in the trial, with the prosecution attempting to show that the beginning numbers the victim had seen on the rapist's temporary license were close to those on Titus's vehicle. In fact, too close to be a coincidence. In court, the victim moved them even closer, changing 667 to 677, which were the ending numbers on Titus's temporary plate. On cross-examination, defense counsel brought out the change. Detective Parker testified as well. He told the jury that Titus gave a statement on the night of the rape. He said that Titus told officers he had spent the afternoon of the rape, which was Sunday, October 12th, at his parents' home about two miles north of SeaTac Airport. There was a birthday party there for his father. The detective then told the jury that Titus said he left his parents' home at 6.10 p.m. and headed to his apartment. He said he arrived at his apartment at 6.55 p.m. 
A few days before trial, the Western Washington State Crime Lab had determined that the tire tracks found at the rape scene did not come from Titus's Chevette. On the stand, Detective Parker, who had taken pictures of the tire tracks on the night of the rape, testified that the tire tracks he photographed were not the marks belonging to the rapist. He said he realized this for the first time when he returned to the scene of the crime with the victim on the first day of trial. He said the victim recalled that the rapist drove straight in and back straight out and that the tire marks he photographed took a turn to the right. Now, the photos didn't show it, but he basically said, I didn't photograph the entire set of tracks, but I remember them turning to the right. So these are not the proper tire tracks. Lastly, Detective Parker said that he saw a brown vinyl binder on the rear seat of Titus's car on the night Titus was pulled over. This is obviously consistent with what the victim said. Although they were called by the prosecution, specialists from the state crime laboratory told the jury they found no evidence that the rape victim had been in Titus's car. Port police had lifted 18 fingerprints from Titus's Chevette, and a criminalist testified that none were from the victim. Police had also cut out sections of blue vinyl upholstery from the seats in Titus's car in hopes of finding seminal stains. That also proved negative. Microscopic analysis showed that hair fibers gleaned from inside the car were dissimilar to those of the victim. Nor did clothing fibers recovered from Titus's car match what the victim was wearing the night of the rape. A criminalist testified that numerous head hairs were recovered from a blue sweater worn by the victim. Although a single red mustache hair or beard hair found on the sweater had some characteristics similar to those of Titus, the hair was the wrong color to have come from Titus. Now, the defense case was simple. The prosecution could not prove their case because Titus had an alibi. His parents testified as to what he was wearing when he left their house early on the evening of the rape, which was not a three-piece suit. Titus took the stand and denied owning any suit. Defense counsel suggested that Detective Parker change the estimates of time that Titus gave him on the night of the rape. Titus said he told officers that he left his parents' home at 6.10 p.m. and arrived home at 6.30, not 6.55, as the detective testified. Kath, what was funny about this is that the detective admitted that he took a statement from Titus on the night of the rape, but he never put it in written form until four months later, which was just a couple days before trial. I wonder how the defense knew to ask Detective Parker about that and get him to admit that on the stand. I'm sure what happened is they got the discovery and there was nothing in the discovery about what Titus said. They're going to revoke my baby bar for that question. I know, but that's okay. Once you pass the baby bar, you got to take the real bar anyway, and that's even harder. So Maybe Kim will study more with me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you need a study buddy. <laughs> you need to do flashcards together. I know. <laughs> We'll pull all nighters. Exactly. <laughs> but I'm sure literally a couple days before the trial started, the prosecutor was like, oh, hey, by the way, here's this report. And the guy was like, ruh, ruh. Yeah. <laughs> when Titus got home, he said he called his friend who lived in the same apartment complex to come over. His friend arrived no later than 6.50 p.m. They hung out and watched the Superman movie. Defense counsel introduced phone records showing Titus made a long distance call to his fiance at exactly 7 p.m. 
According to Titus's version, he was unaccompanied for 40 minutes from the time he left his parents' home at 6.10 p.m. until 6.50 when his friend arrived at the apartment to watch a movie. Titus's apartment was eight miles from the scene of the rape. Titus insisted that it was not physically possible for him to be the rapist. And Kath, what we know is that the victim testified that she was picked up at 6.30. We also know that at 7.22, she called 911. But we also know he had to be home by 7 p.m. when the phone call was made. The defense also brought out that no vinyl binder was mentioned in the report written by Officer Scott Pearson, who searched Titus's car on the night of the rape. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. (laughs) So if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to BadlandsFood.com slash Killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S. F-O-O-D dot com slash Killer D. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The friend who went to Titus's apartment to watch a movie also testified. He confirmed that he was at Titus's apartment for at least 10 minutes before Titus made the long distance call at 7 p.m. to his fiancée. They remained in the apartment for several hours after that, and Titus left at about 9.20 to pick up his fiancée at the Denny's restaurant where she worked. Titus's father and brother testified that he was wearing dark slacks, a dark sweater, and a green shirt when he left the birthday party, not a three-piece cream-colored suit. But even if Titus owned a three-piece suit, his lawyer argued, what would the purpose have been in changing into it? His attorney argued there would not have been any time to change. Jurors deliberated for 12 hours. During that time, they had four votes. On the first two, it was split eight to four in favor of acquittal. On the third, it was split seven five, still leaning towards acquittal. Two hours later, on the fourth and final ballot, all 12 jurors reached an agreement. On March 4th, 1981, just over a week after trial began, the jury found Steve Titus guilty of first degree rape. 
one of the jurors was asked by a reporter, with testimony placing Titus in his apartment at the time of the rape, how could the jury have believed that he was eight miles away? And the juror said, we did not think that his friend was sure about his times. Although sentencing was days away, Titus's attorney requested a continuance. Now, the judge wasn't happy with this. He wanted to move forward with the sentencing, but still granted a two-week continuance. Titus was facing a minimum of three years and a maximum of 20 years, but he was out on bail until sentencing. It was during this time that Titus contacted journalist Paul Henderson of the Seattle Times, asking him to investigate this case. Titus accused Detective Parker of intentionally lying about the binder and the timeline. Paul Henderson was interested, but of course, Kath, he had the challenge of thinking, was he being manipulated by a rapist or was this really an innocent man asking for help? The Seattle Times investigation began April 9th, five weeks after Titus's conviction. Journalist Henderson began pounding the pavement, interviewing witnesses and conducting his own research. In the meantime, Titus obtained a new attorney, Jeff Jones, and asked Judge Johnson to stay sentencing for 60 additional days. There's a lot of J's here. There really is. <laughs> Judge Johnson, Jeff Jones, Jeff Jones. <laughs> Steve Titus. <laughs> Jones argued more time was needed to prepare briefs challenging the verdict. The judge rescheduled sentencing, giving defendants more time. Three motions were filed, one to overturn the verdict based on insufficient evidence, one asking for a new trial on the grounds of new evidence, and one asking for a reduction to second-degree rape. Then on May 15, 1981, five weeks after he began investigating, the first of a series of articles written by Paul Henderson appeared in the Seattle Times. He revealed the changes in testimony regarding the victim and witnesses' timing of events, the tire marks of the suspect's car that suddenly weren't the suspect's car, the failure of the police to write down Titus's version of events until just before trial, and new information regarding temporary license plates. So, Kath, remember the temporary license plate stickers are issued each month and they're given to dealers and county auditors across the state. Henderson reported that it was not brought out in court that a block of a thousand plates beginning with the numerical sequence 667 had been mailed to the auditor of Benton County in late September. This is about 200 miles southeast of Seattle. Another block of plates bearing the sequence 677 had been distributed among 25 car dealers in Pierce County. And this is like 40 miles or so south of Seattle at the same time. So September of 1980. So Henderson led everyone to realize that it was conceivable that over a thousand vehicles locally bore the same or similar beginning sequence as Titus's vehicle. And what's so crazy about it is that nowadays you pop it in a computer, bing, bang, bong, which is how computers work. You have an answer. <laughs> yeah, and back exactly. Then, you would have had to go do an individual search yeah. of every office that received those. Right. Well, it turns out that's exactly what Titus tried to do himself. Once he was convicted, he freaked out because he was hearkening back to his night in jail. The one night in jail he spent, he said he was looking around the cell and had decided like, okay, if I have to get put back in here, where am I going to hang the rope? The idea of being in prison was unbearable. So after he was convicted, he went out and he stood in the area where this victim had been picked up. 
He wrote down license plate numbers. He took down cars. He followed people who had beards. Like this guy was trying to find, you know. He was trying to solve his own case. He was trying to solve his own case. One of the things he did was visit car dealerships. He was doing a ton of legwork. That kind of reminds me of the Denise Huber case, which is episode one and episode 69, in which the police actually sat on a freeway and started taking down license plate numbers of cars at that same time of night Mm -hmm. so they could try and talk to somebody and see if they'd seen something as a witness. Yeah, you're right. Good old fashioned legwork. Ultimately, the Seattle Times journalist did what nobody else did. He timed the events. Basically, Henderson knows the long distance call at 7 p.m. in Titus's apartment is sacrosanct. Irrefutable proof. Exactly. So he says, okay, conservatively, he would have had to leave the rape scene at 6.45 p.m. But what we know is that the 911 call was made at 7.22 p.m. So that's over 30 minutes that it would have taken her to get to Paul Liston's house. And the distance was only 250 yards. So Using a stopwatch at night in the dark, the reporter walked from the rape scene to Liston's front door in three minutes. Now, here's what's interesting. In her statement, she didn't tell the police that she had trouble getting to the house or finding the house. She didn't get lost. But in trial, the prosecutor said something about the victim becoming disoriented in the dark and having difficulty finding this house. So starting at the rape scene... Paul Henderson took every possible wrong turn along the victim's route. The amount of time it took to walk from the scene to Liston's house with him zigzagging was just eight minutes. That leaves, by the most conservative estimate, almost 15 minutes unaccounted for. Like, where did that time go? And the rape victim said she was running to the house. Paul Henderson, the journalist, is like, this does not make sense within the prosecution's own timeline. Hey, who needs to learn to drive? Seriously, who needs to learn to drive? (laughs) (laughs) Or which friend of yours needs to learn to drive so they'll stop using you as their personal rideshare service? But without the tips. (laughs) (laughs) If you live in the Southern California counties of Los Angeles and Orange, Premium Driving School can help. Their certified instructors will help you pass your permit test, learn how to drive and get your license. And you'll be learning in a late model Mini Cooper. So that's fun. That's the best part. Premium Driving School offers a number of packages, including behind-the-wheel driving lesson packages for teens and adults, and refresher driving skills lessons for mature and senior drivers. Maybe I should have Dick and Laura go there. (laughs) Those are Kathy's parents, and I think you're actually right. (laughs) They could use it. (laughs) Lessons are available seven days a week and are based on each person's individual skill and ability level. Premium Driving School is here to help you learn how to drive and become a confident and safe driver and... It has a five-star Google rating. For more information, go to their website, learntodrivetoday.com. Learn, the number two, drivetoday.com. And with the code KILLERD, they'll give you a 10% discount on your lessons. Henderson also obtained photos of the tire marks. Even though the detective testified he was wrong about the tire marks because they traveled in a wrong direction, the photos actually showed otherwise. They did not show any turns. An expert contacted by the Seattle Times identified the tread design as a Michelin XYZ steel belted radial. That tire was standard on a number of imported cars, including the 1981 Honda Accord LX. Honda dealers took delivery of that model in late September 1980. Metallic medium blue is one of the three colors available in the car, and the standard velour upholstery is matching blue. 
The victim told police she was raped in a royal blue car with blue velvet seats, not a light blue car with final seats like Titus drove. The Times investigation included extensive research on compact cars similar in exterior design and interior decor to the vehicle described by the rape victim. The Honda Accord LX was a match. Nearly three months after Titus was convicted, Judge Johnson granted Titus's motion for a new trial. By the way, Kath, I read in a couple different articles that the judge cited these newspaper articles. Shortly after that, and based on the investigative work of Paul Henderson, the prosecution dismissed all charges. The 43-year-old Seattle Times reporter, he actually won a Pulitzer Prize for special local reporting for his series. He had worked at that time, Kathy, at the Seattle Times since he was 28 years old. He then went on to work as a private detective, eventually assisting in the exoneration of over two dozen wrongly convicted defendants. You know, it must have been a really heady feeling for him to have been able to do this work and actually, instead of just reporting it, and I don't mean that in a negative connotation because obviously people need it for information, but for his work to specifically exonerate somebody from going to prison for what could have been the rest of their life. After a recent conviction. Exactly. I mean, that's kind of crazy. what about all the older ones? Yeah. It was actually his writing from which I got most of the material for this podcast. But if Titus didn't rape the teenage girl... Who did? During his investigation, Henderson discovered that a similar rape had occurred in a nearby location just six days before the rape Titus was accused of. The victim in that case was a 15-year-old girl, and when she was shown Titus's photo in a lineup, she ignored it. It meant nothing to her. Another woman, age 21, was also raped near the same dead-end road. According to an Associated Press article on July 1st, 1981 in the News Tribune, less than a month after Titus's case was dismissed, an arrest warrant was issued for 28-year-old Edward King after he was identified by these two additional victims. He fled the state, was arrested in Los Angeles, I think at a stepdad's house, and then extradited back to Seattle. It was reported, Kath, that when the 17-year-old victim who accused Titus saw Edward King's photo, she started crying and she said, oh my God, what have I done to Mr. Titus? What a heavy burden to bear. Oh, totally. And that's the thing. Like, if you're going to be the police officer who stretches the truth or fabricates things, you only hurt everyone around you. You hurt all the cops that are good and working hard. You hurt the victims because you're forcing a false narrative on them. And can you imagine the guilt this poor girl felt? Anyway, not only did Edward King make headlines for being the lookalike to Steve Titus, he also made headlines because he was revealed to be a serial rapist. King was referred to as the open house rapist in Snohomish because he preyed on female realtors. Court records show that less than a month after Titus's case was dismissed, the King County prosecutor charged Edward King with raping four women. One of the reasons I would not be a realtor is that fear. I knew somebody that that happened to. I would be like, oh, you don't want dogs in your house? I'm sorry, my Rottweiler's coming with me. (laughs) See, I would have gotten my Belgian Malinois because they've got a better bite ratio. (laughs) (laughs) Instead, I have a fool schnauzer who won't bite anybody. (laughs) Would anyone like a dog? You have to have a high threshold for hyperactive. Shh, shh, don't. You gotta sell the dog. That's not gonna sell a dog. He's a wonderful, well-trained dog. Roof. 
In September of 1981, two and a half months after the Titus case was dismissed, King entered a plea where he admitted to raping all four women, but the prosecution allowed him to only plead guilty on two counts of first-degree rape while armed with a deadly weapon. The judge sentenced King to 40 years in prison, but suspended the sentence on several conditions. The most important being that King enter and successfully complete a sexual psychopathy program at Western State Hospital. The court ordered King to undergo an evaluation to determine whether he was a sexual psychopath. I think I can answer that question for them. Exactly. I feel like I would have been really, really cheap at coming to that determination. A lot cheaper than the psychologist they use. But this was the prosecutor's agreed upon sentence. And although the judge is the one who, you know, obviously sentences, the prosecutor makes recommendations. Right. Four months after being sentenced in King County, he pled guilty to four more rapes in Snohomish County. He received three consecutive 20-year sentences. But again, the judge suspended these sentences on the condition that King comply with the sexual psychopath program previously ordered for the Seattle rapes. You know, it'd be interesting, Kathy. Did you ever find out if that program worked? I didn't. And I also couldn't figure out whether it was in play today. I actually looked up to try to find that out. And there was a bunch of PDFs on things, but I didn't feel like downloading them. So, so sorry. (laughs) Maybe you'll find out a different time. (laughs) We're just going to hang that one in the air. (laughs) I also couldn't find out whether this guy drove a Honda Accord. That's true. And you looked hard for that. I looked hard for that. That She downloaded some PDFs for that one. (laughs) (laughs) Now, in treatment... King admitted to five rapes in California and was declared a sexual psychopath by doctors. He then calmly participated in the program for three years and completed all of its 10 steps. Staff admitted that King was a model patient, but he told staff members and two psychologists that he committed approximately 50 rapes for which he was never caught. Now, at the end of his three-year program, the Indeterminate Sentence Review Board, this is a civil proceeding to keep somebody in custody if they're a sexual predator and likely to reoffend, wanted to keep him locked up. And I believe, Kath, this was for 30 years. I think it was. King challenged the board's decision in court. Based on the testimony of two psychologists in April of 1985, the judge revoked King's suspended sentences and committed him to the Department of Corrections to serve out his sentence. And Kath, I believe it was the kind of thing where the psychologists were like, yeah, he's a cool customer. He didn't do anything wrong. There were no behavioral issues, but he's a psychopath. He's a psychopath. And we can't say he's not going to hurt people again. Yeah. The court found that King had failed to successfully complete the sexual psychopathy program and had therefore violated the conditions of his probation. The court reinstated the original sentences in King and Snohomish counties. So that would have been five 20-year sentences or something like that. Anyway, a gob of years. <laughs> yeah. Let's just say he wouldn't have been walking out on two feet. He would That's have been carried true. out laying horizontally. Exactly. <laughs> King made headlines by trying to vacate his not guilty plea, saying that his psychologist at Western State Hospital promised him confidentiality. Following an evidentiary hearing, the judge found that King was told that information he provided during his stay, which I like how they say it like it's a hotel. Exactly. At Western State could be made available to the court and that the rules of confidentiality did not apply. The court found further that while King thought his disclosures would be confidential, he was in fact told that they would be confidential only with respect to third parties, such as spouses, friends and relatives. 
He was never advised that his disclosures were confidential in regard to the court system. King's attempt to withdraw his guilty plea and challenge his sentence was ultimately unsuccessful. So let's back up. A couple months after Titus's case was dismissed, he filed suit against the Port of Seattle. His life was ruined. He had lost his job, a career that took him five years to earn because he was emotionally destroyed and couldn't cope. He lost his fiancée because he'd changed and was not the person she knew. He lost his savings, his family savings, and owed his lawyers thousands of dollars. Titus became embittered, particularly by the lack of apology on behalf of the police or the prosecutor. In fact, they were defending their actions. So, you know, Kath, this is a little bit different. But back in 1987, a man named Raymond Donovan, who was the Secretary of Labor under President Ronald Reagan, he was accused and indicted for corruption charges for his work prior to becoming Secretary of Labor, having mob ties. It wasn't true. He went through hell. And at the end of it, he said a famous statement, which was, that's great. The indictment's been kicked. That's not the quote. (laughs) But basically, he said, like, the indictment's been kicked. It's gone. Where do I go to get my reputation? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply back. Oh, totally. And that's what this reminded me of. Right. You have these people who are falsely accused. Look at everything this man went through because of why. Right. A police detective who wanted to solve a crime. Yeah. Like maybe the guy really believed he was a culprit and thought it was okay to lie. I mean, come on. Right. However, just before Titus's civil rights trial in 1985 against the Port of Seattle, he died of a heart attack. Kath, he was in his mid-30s. Oh, my gosh. I think he was actually 34 years old, died of a heart attack. That's crazy. I know. The case was settled, and I read two separate things, and I couldn't find any court records on this. One said that it was settled out of court, and his teenage son, Ken, was awarded $2.8 million on behalf of his father. Another thing I read is that his parents settled and got $2 million to be paid over 20 years. Now, frankly, both can be true because they could have been the guardian ad litem if he had a teenage son and suing on behalf of this boy. But I have no idea if it's true. Yeah, I only saw one resource that talked about his son. The year after Titus died, so did the port detective who had helped wrongly convict him, Ronald Parker. And he was only 43 and he too suffered a heart attack. Ooh, I think we have a conspiracy here. (laughs) It's what, 42 years old? Yeah, exactly. We can do it. I know. The one who lasted the longest calf was reporter Paul Henderson. He died on December 7th, 2016. I'm actually going to beg to differ. The one who lasted the longest was Edward King. Oh, that's true. He was currently 70 years old and housed at the Stafford Creek Correction Center in Washington. Stay tuned for Patreon. It is still coming. We got two weeks. We promise. (laughs) If not, we're going to give you Kathy's home address and she's going to host a party for everyone who shows up. (laughs) And you can take my dog home with you. (laughs) 
Now, the other thing, too, is we got another review that was awesome, and it's from Noche Kitty 11. I like that. I like that. <laughs> she said, obsessed with you two. The stories are perfectly told and the humor is always on point. Keep going, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. We'll do our best. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Join us on Patreon. Yay! <laughs> We just reached 5,000 followers on Instagram. Yay. Booyah. Exactly. I don't know why I said that. (laughs) 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 I'm cutting that out. (laughs) But if you don't follow us, please do. And subscribe to Patreon. Did I mention that? Yeah, I think you did. (laughs) I don't know. Over and over and over. Thanks for listening.